So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn them to Genesis chapter 12. We relaunched, we restarted our study of Genesis last week. Uh, we, about three years ago, we completed the first 11 chapters and took a break to go through Romans. And last week, we restarted that by get, doing a summary of those first 11 chapters. But this morning, we're restarting our verse-by-verse exposition of Genesis, beginning in chapter 12. So in chapter 12, we're introduced to this guy named Abraham. Um, in this passage, he is known as Abram. Uh, but later in chapter 17, God will change his name to Abraham. Abram means great father, and Abraham means great father of many, a great father of a multitude. But for now, his name is Abram, but uh, I'll likely refer to him as Abraham all the way through. He's the first patriarch of many that we're going to cover in this great book, Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob and Joseph and so on and so on. But Abraham is the first, and his story will begin here in chapter 12 and will continue through uh, chapter 25. So a huge chunk of this book is devoted to this man named Abraham and his life and what God is doing in him and through him and through his family. It would be very difficult to understate or to, to overstate the importance and the significance of Abraham in God's story. Three world religions trace their heritage back to Abraham. Christianity, of course, Judaism, as well as Islam, as we'll see in the next few chapters. Great historical biblical figures that we all know about and have read about and have studied. Folks like King David, King Solomon, the prophet Elijah, Daniel, and the likes of the Apostle Paul who wrote Romans that we just got finished looking at. All of them would point back to this man as their father in the faith. We saw in our study of Romans that Paul devoted an entire chapter, chapter 4 of Romans, to the example of Abraham's faith. And in Matthew's gospel, he traces Jesus' lineage back to Abraham. In fact, the very first verse of Matthew's gospel reads like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he begins with Abraham and traces that lineage to his son and then his son's son and then his son's son's son all the way to the son of Mary and Joseph, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we read this morning out of chapter 12, our first encounter with Abraham in the first nine verses uh, known as the call of Abraham. So let's read the first nine verses of, Roman, of Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. 
Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through to the land of the to passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, "To your offspring I will give this land." So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the privilege of coming before you with your people to worship you in song and now to worship you by directing our attention to your word. We thank you for this book. We thank you for how you have preserved it throughout the ages so that we can know what we hold in our hands to be the words of God, the very breath of you, our God. And we ask this morning, Lord, that you speak to us, that you would give us understanding. We pray for a a spirit of interpretation and understanding, but not just so that we will be smarter about what it says, but so that, Lord, you would apply it by your spirit to our lives so that we'll look more like Jesus, so that you, you will accomplish your will and your purposes in us and through us until you bring us home. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the, in the opening verse there of chapter 12, the Lord speaks to Abraham, this God who created the universe, this God who, uh, who told Noah to build an ark and to get in the ark with his family, this God that we've been walking with through the first 11 chapters, now he speaks to Abraham. But we're introduced to Abraham actually in the closing verses of chapter 11. So I want to direct your attention to verses 27 through 32 of the previous chapter. Here, Moses is writing and he's giving us the genealogy of Shem. Shem is one of the sons of Noah, and nine generations after Shem, we come to this guy named Terah. Terah uh, becomes the father of Abraham, and so we pick up the story in verse 27 as we're introduced to this guy. Verse 27 says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot, Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah was barren, she had no child. So this guy Terah is living in Ur of the Chaldeans. That is what, what we would see today as modern-day Iraq or Iran, depending what part of southern Mesopotamia, just north of the Persian Gulf. That's their homeland. That's where Terah is living. And he has three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, this guy Haran is not to be confused with the city Haran that we'll see in chapter 12 that we just read about. 
they are actually two different words in the Hebrew. They look the same in English, but in Hebrew and in the pronunciation of the language that this was written in, they were different words. One is the brother of Abram, and one is the city where they had settled for a time. Anyway, Haran dies there in Ur, in Mesopotamia, and Abraham and his brother Nahor get married. And Nahor and his wife have children. Um, Haran has a a child. Haran fathers Lot. Lot will figure very prominently in the the story that we're looking at in Genesis in the next few chapters. We'll read a lot about him. But his son was named Lot. But we, we hear no more about Nahor until we get to chapter 12, or excuse me, chapter 22, where we find out that he continued his nomadic life and he had several children. But Abraham married this lady named Sarai. God later renamed Sarai, just as he later renames Abram. In fact, in the very same verse where God renames Abram as Abraham, he renames Sarai as Sarah. So more than likely, as I'll refer to Abram as Abraham, I'll probably refer to Sarai as Sarah as we go through this story. But Abraham and Sarai have no children, and we're told why, because she was barren. She couldn't have children. She was childless. So already in this story, we see a tension that is building, because we know And the Israelites who are in the Sinai Peninsula, who are hearing this story first from Moses, as he spoke it to them, later as he wrote it down and recorded this historical account, both we know and the Israelites in the Sinai Peninsula know that what Moses is doing here is tracing this thread of God's plan of redemption. We talked about it last week. It all started back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God cursed the serpent because he had tempted Adam and Eve and caused the fall of man. And God cursed the serpent and said, there there is a seed of promise. There is the promise of one who's going to come from the seed of the woman, who's going to crush your head, serpent, and thereby defeating sin and death and man's captivity to sin and death. And so Moses has traced that seed of promise, the thread of that seed of promise, all the way from Adam all the way through Noah, all the way through Shem and his descendants, and now to Abraham. But how can the seed of promise continue, and how can all that's associated with that promise actually happen if Abram and Sarah have no children, and they have no hope of any children? And so we see the tension in this story beginning to build, both for us and for the Israelites as they're hearing this from Moses. Another thing that we see in those closing verses of chapter 11 is Terah, Abram's father, he's actually traveling to Canaan, but he only gets so far as Haran. Look at verses 31 and 32, the last two verses of chapter 11. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, note here that we don't have God's command to Abraham to leave all that he knows and go to a land that I'll show you until chapter 12 that we're looking at this morning. 
But here already at the end of chapter 11, both Abraham and his father are already traveling to Canaan. They're already on the way. So what gives? Well, if you look at the opening verse of chapter 12, the opening phrase says, now the Lord said to Abram. Now, if you've got a King James Version or you've got an NIV, it's going to read differently. It'll say, the Lord had said to Abram. In fact, your ESV, which I typically read out of, has a footnote to that effect. And so there, there is good reason here from the Hebrew grammar to suggest that what, what he's referring to here is a command that God gave to Abraham back when they lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, not after they had resettled in Haran. So what we have here in the closing verses of chapter 11 is Moses telling us that Abraham went Abraham's father, Terah, went with them on this journey to this land that God would show them, but he only got as far as Haran, modern-day Syria. That's where Haran is. As you travel up from uh, the southern Mesopotamia, just north of the Persian Gulf, travel along the Euphrates River, you get to what is today modern-day Syria. It's where Haran was. It was the gateway into Canaan. It's the way you got to Canaan from southern Mesopotamia without having to travel through the Arabian desert. And so that's where they settle, and Abraham's father ended up dying there years later. So now as we start into chapter 12, we actually, now we're going back to Ur. Now we're going back to before they had left, and we're seeing why they left, why they left Ur of the Chaldeans. And the reason is because God told him to. Verse 1 of chapter 12 says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, or the Lord had said to Abraham at that point, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So God tells Abraham to leave three things. First of all, leave your country, that is your land, the, the place where you know and you live. Leave, you leave your land, leave your kindred, That is, the people that you know, your extended family, your circle, and leave your father's house. In other words, leave your home. Leave your family, leave your your home, leave leave your father's house. And by the way, when he says leave your father's house, he's also telling them leave your father's gods. We're we're told that um, Terah, and his fathers and Abraham's ancestry that they were idolaters, that they worshiped pagan gods. Joshua, in, as they're encamped on the eastern shore of the Jordan River before they cross over into the promised land, uh, centuries later, uh, Joshua will, will, will reference that. He says in Joshua 24, verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, Your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. And so they were idolaters. So this call for Abraham to leave his home and to leave his land and to leave his father's house was also a call to leave the only gods he had ever known and to follow this this God who was now speaking to him. So this God, Yahweh, says to Abraham, leave everything that you know. Of course, Abraham will say, 
okay, God, where do you want me to go? And God, in a sense, says, don't worry about that. I'll show you. Just get going. Start leaving. Imagine how difficult that would have been for Abraham. Um, as, a, as a short aside, they didn't know I was going to do this, but um, today is the last day for the Helms in our faith family. They are moving. Um, most of you know that they are moving up to Richmond, and um, we're going to sorely miss that precious family. God is calling them to a different place. He's calling them away from this. But they, they, ha- they know where they're going. They're going, they're going up to Richmond. And they've got a home there. They, they, they know where they're going to live. And so this is a hard time for their family. They're, they're leaving a place that they love. They're leaving their home. They're, they're, they're leaving this extended family. But at least they know where they're going. Imagine Abraham. Imagine Sarah. Uh, imagine that family. Pack up everything that you've got. And leave all that you know. And I'm not telling you yet where you're going. Just start trusting me. Just start following me. And I'll show you the land where I am sending you. That must have been incredibly difficult for Abraham and his family. To leave everything. Leave your father's house. Leave your extended family. Leave your religion. Leave your way of life in Ur and go to a land that I will show you. And so, again, we see the tension building, right? The tension is building. What's, what's God doing here? What's happening here in this story? And the tension reaches a climax in verses 2 and 3. Here in verse, verses 2 and 3, God, along with his call to Abraham to leave what you know and go to a land that I will show you, he gives Seven promises. If you, if you will trust me and you will leave this land and you will go to that place that I'm going to show you, I've got seven promises for you. You find them in verses 2 and 3. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Seven promises there. And they're all promises of something good. There's no promises of bad. There's promises only of good. Promises of blessing here. The word bless or blessing is used five times in just those two verses. Now we can categorize those seven promises into two parts. First of all, the promises of blessing to Abraham and his descendants. But secondly, the promises to what he says, all the families of the earth through Abraham and his descendants. So there's, there's two sets of promises here. One, to Abraham and his descendants, and then promises of blessing to all the families of the earth through them. See, there's a purpose to Abraham's blessing. He says in verse 2, I will make of you a great nation, I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that, that's, that's the language of purpose, that's, that's the language of, of reason, so that, what's the reason? So that you will be a blessing. 
So, so God was not only going to bless Abraham, but he was going to use Abraham to be a blessing. So we see God's sovereign will at work here. We see, we see his sovereign hand of purpose at work here. He's doing something not only to Abraham, but he's doing something through Abraham. He's, he's orchestrating lives in, in order to accomplish his will and his purpose. And so the story is not just about Abraham and his descendants, but it's about God building his kingdom. We should make no mistake about it. Abraham, as much as he is focused on in, in, in chapters 12 through 25, as much as he is referred back to in the remainder of this book and in the remainder of the entire Bible, he is not the central character of Genesis. God is. This God who existed before time began, in the beginning there was God. This God who spoke all of creation into existence. This God whom we saw last week had a divine plan, which he had formulated among the Trinity before time had even begun. And his plan was to display his glory and his grace by rescuing and redeeming sinners back to himself. And he's been showing us hints of this plan all throughout this story. He showed us hints of this plan in the garden and in the flood and in the Tower of Babel. And now this God speaks to Abram and tells him not only was God going to bless him, but now God is going to use him and his family to fulfill his plan to bless others beyond Abraham's family. Verse 3 tells us that, that God is also going to sovereignly protect Abraham and his descendants. And he's going to protect his plan that he's going to enact through their family. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And certainly, we're going to see lots of examples of that in this book, in Genesis. As God blesses those who bless he and, and his descendants, and that he comes against those who curse them and dishonor them. We're going to see that all throughout Genesis and all throughout the Old Testament. But the closing phrase of verse 3 is really the crux of the tension in this story. Because the closing promise that God makes to Abraham is, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That phrase, the families of the earth, all the families of the earth, that word families means all the clans, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth, all the people groups of the earth shall be blessed through you, Abraham. So here we have definitive, definitive revelation from God that this seed of promise that we saw last week that was first promised back in Genesis 3.15 that this, this promise that there will come one from the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent and deliver sinners from sin and judgment of sin, that seed of promise, we now have definitive revelation from God that that seed of promise will in fact come through Abraham. And yet, Sarah, his wife, is barren. She can't have children. She is una unable 
to bear children. And not only that, but in the very next verse, we learn that Abraham's 75 years old. So how in the world is this going to happen? We, we, we feel the tension now come to a, to a crux. How is this possible? It's either not going to happen or it's going to take a miracle for it to happen. And that's the question. How in the world is this going to happen? That is the question that Abraham and Sarah will wrestle with for 10 chapters in this book. And we will too. We get to walk with them through that. But in the context of our passage this morning, now that the, the, the tension has been built up to this climax, in three words, Moses diffuses the, cleanse, the, the tension right away. So Abraham's been told to leave everything that he knows. Leave your family, leave your house, leave your religion, leave everything that you know, and go to a land that I will show you one day. All based on God's promises of blessing to him and his descendants and all the families of the earth, but all based on Yahweh's promises. So would he or would he not obey? The quick answer of verses 4 through 9 is yes, Abraham does obey, and from the context here, there doesn't appear to be much deliberation on his part in this very huge decision Now, we don't know. Perhaps that's an argument from silence. Maybe he did deliberate about it. Maybe he and Sarah spent many sleepless nights thinking and weighing the pros and cons and talking to this new God about this and trying to figure this out. We we don't know. Maybe he did deliberate, but there's nothing from the context that tells us that he deliberated at all. We just have three words. There's the call to leave, everything that you know, and then three words. So Abram went. Look at verses 4 and 5. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. So he obeyed. He packed up everything that he had. And he set out for Canaan. But we should note, when it says that he set out for Canaan, he didn't know that was the land that that, that God was providing for him. He, He didn't know that that was his ultimate destination. They were just following the Lord. The Lord didn't tell them that Canaan was their final destination until they had already arrived in Canaan later in the story. Until then, they just had to trust the Lord each day. Trust me, I'll show you. I'll guide you, I'll help you, I'll protect you, I'll provide for you, and I will show you this land. Just keep trusting me. Then they arrived. At the end of verse 5, they arrive in Canaan. Look at verses 5 and 6. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So there's there's a foreshadowing of future tension in future episodes of this story there's people already there in this land that God is giving to Abraham strong people we read from Genesis chapter 10 these were strong people with fortified cities so we see there's tension that that, that's going to come in future episodes of this story here but then look at verse 7 then the Lord appeared to Abraham so now he's not just speaking to Abraham he's appearing to Abraham 
He says, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he's in Shechem. He's, he's, he's entered into Canaan already at this point. And he says, this is the land. So now we see that this promise that God made back in verse 2 to Abraham, that, that of blessing Abraham and, and his descendants, now we see that that promise included a land component for them. God's promise to bless Abraham and his descendants not only included that he would make them into a great nation, but that they would also have this promised land, the land of Canaan. And so what did Abraham do as a result of that? Well, he worshiped. He built altars and he worshiped God. Look at the second half of verse 7 down through the end of our passage. So he built there in Shechem. He built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved down. He's going further south now to the hill country, to the east of Bethel. He pitched his tent there with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So Abram enters Canaan up at Shechem from the north end, coming down from Haran. And God says, this, this is it. This is, this is the land. This is the land that I told you I was going to show you, the land that I'm taking you to, that I'm going to give to you. Th- this is it. This is where your descendants will become a great nation. This is the land that I am giving to you and to your descendants. This will be their land. And what does he do? He builds an altar to the Lord, and he worships God and thanks God. And then he moves further south in Canaan. He comes to Bethel. He does the same thing. He builds an altar, and he worships God again. We, we should probably note here that he pitches a tent for himself, a temporary dwelling. He's still a nomadic people. He's still going to travel further south to the Negev, to the southern border of Canaan. So he builds a temporary dwelling for himself, but he builds a permanent altar for the Lord, for Yahweh. So he, we learn here that he's more concerned about worship of the Lord than he is concerned about his own family's dwelling. So there we pause for now, this story of Abraham. And, and as we pause it, we need, to, we need to ask ourselves, what would Moses' original audience have gathered from that story? It's really important that we ask that question first. Before we begin to apply this passage to our lives, we have to apply it to their life first. Because the, the, the meaning of the message must go through that filter. And if we skip this step, then we could end up applying this to our lives today in ways that Moses never intended. For example, it would be very easy for us to force an application of this text and say that God is calling us out of our former way of life and he's calling us into a new way of life. He's, he's calling us to, to, to a new life. And it's going to be a hard life, just, just it was a hard life for Abraham to leave that old life and to, and to trust God and follow him in this new life. It's going to be a hard life, just like it was hard for Abraham. And it's going to require daily trust of God, just as it, just as it required daily trust for Abraham. And, and that's, a, that's a good lesson. It's just not necessarily the primary lesson that we get from this passage. 
It's a good biblical lesson, in fact. But we need to ask ourselves, what would the original audience have gathered from this? And they wouldn't have gathered that. Leave your old way of life and, and trust God with a new way of living. So what did it mean to them? In order to understand that, not only what did it mean to them, but what did Moses intend for it to mean? And what did God intend for it to mean to the original audience? In order for us to understand that, we've got to go back to their setting. And what was their setting? They're in the wilderness, right? They're, they're, they're on the Sinai Peninsula. And, and they're, they're wandering in the desert. Their recent past included deliverance out of slavery in Egypt. God had led them to sacrifice lambs and take the blood of the sacrificial lamb and paint it on the doorposts of their homes so that the 10th plague of Egypt, the angel of death, would pass over the Israelite children. And then when they got to the Red Sea, the Lord had parted the Red Sea. With the armies of Pharaoh in hot, in hot pursuit, the, the, the waters of the Red Sea parted in front of them so that they crossed over on dry land and were rescued from the Egyptians. This was their recent past, and it was fresh on their mind. And then what, what lied ahead of them was Canaan. What lied ahead of them as they're wandering in this wilderness is, is the promised land, Canaan. They had fled from Canaan generations earlier because of a famine. And we'll read about that story in the closing chapters of, of Genesis. But there was a famine in Canaan, in, in Canaan, in the promised land. And so they fled away from that. And they fled down south to Egypt because there was food there. And that's going to be a tremendous story when we get to that. But their provision of rescue generations later became their captivity. For 400 years, the Egyptians had held them in slavery and building their earthly kingdom. But now, as they're in the wilderness, they've been rescued out of that bondage, out of that slavery. And once again, they're on the precipice of Canaan. They're, they're, they're about to enter back into Canaan. They're in that wilderness land in between, about to enter back in. And Moses it records this historical account of the story of Abraham. Led by the Spirit of God, he pens these words where God made a covenant with Abraham. A covenant of grace. The covenant of grace began in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And, and, and this is a how of this covenant of grace. This is how God was going to do it. So he makes these promises to Abraham. And, and Moses writes this down. That Abraham's offspring would be made into a great nation. And they say, it, it's happened. I see at least partial fulfillment of God's promises. We, we are a great nation. Some two to three million of them wandering the desert in the Sinai Peninsula. God had promised them to not, not only that he would do this, but he would protect them. That he would actively intervene in the, in the affairs of nations and kings in order to protect this people throughout the ages. 
Remember, he said in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And Pharaoh and his army had just learned that the hard way that God was going to do that, that this God, Yahweh, was going to fulfill that promise and protect his children and keep this promise alive. And that promise of protection and that promise of land now stood in front of them, the nation of Israel, as they're in the wilderness. And so the question before them is the same question that was before Abraham. Would they leave the wilderness and trust God to guide them and help them and be their protector, to be their source of provision as they left the wilderness and trusted God in entering into the land? The story of Abraham would have been an incredible encouragement to them. And and certainly that was Moses' intent in recording this historical account to them, to, to encourage them to trust God while you're in the wilderness and as you go into the promised land, to trust God that he's helping you, he's guiding you, he's protecting you, and he, he hasn't left you even though it feels like he might have. It would have reminded them of God's protection and guidance as they made their way out of the wilderness and back into Canaan. And as they encountered the Canaanites, and as they encountered the fortified cities, like like Jericho, the first one that they came to, and all the fortified walls that were there, they would be reminded of God's promise of protection and guidance and provision and all of that. It would have reminded them also that the wilderness is not their home. It would have reminded them that their home lay ahead of them, across the Jordan, on the other side. It had been promised by Yahweh, and and Yahweh was going to keep his promises. This is not our home here in the wilderness. And so in response to this part of the story, the Israelites, or at least the remnant of the Israelites, the faithful ones, would have been encouraged by this, to trust God, to trust God as they journeyed through the wilderness, and that when they did finally get to the Jordan with the promised land on the other bank, that they would trust God to guide them and help them and continue to protect them as they settled in that new land and got about the business of building God's kingdom and worshiping him in their land. And in fact, the Israelites entering back into Canaan was part of the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. But we stand on the other side of history Right? We, we stand on the other side of this story. And, we, and we, we get the privilege of seeing this story on the other side of the story of Jesus of Nazareth. We, we look at this through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of Calvary. We, we look at this through the lens of an empty grave. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of Abraham's promises. Now we see that when, when God told Abraham... That, that I'm going to make you into a great nation, that, that he had much, much, much more in mind than just two or three million people on the east bank of the Jordan River in the wilderness. What he had in mind all along, his goal all along was what? All the families of the earth, the nations, all the peoples of the earth. And the Lord is continuing to work that out even today. After Jesus rose from the dead, before he ascended back to the Father, he gave us the great commission. 
He said, go therefore and make disciples of what? Of all nations, all peoples, all families, all tribes, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Dr. Luke records the Great Commission in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse, where am I? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, something else. He says, uh, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And of course, we have John's vision, his, his vision of the fulfillment of this promise in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. John says, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, from every nation, from every people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is the picture of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that in you, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so, they would have been encouraged to trust God. They would have been encouraged to trust God as they wandered the wilderness and as they prepared to enter into the promised land. Today, the church finds itself in a wilderness, a wilderness of sin and depravity, a wilderness of suffering and brokenness. And we too should be reminded that this wilderness is not our home. We're promised a home, but this isn't it. This is where we are for now, but this isn't our home. This isn't where we'll always be. He's got a promised land waiting for us, a, a land flowing with milk and honey. And by the way, I'm not talking about heaven. I'm talking about the new earth. As we read scripture, as we look at the promises that we see uh, uh, in Revelation, for example, we, we see that the eternity part of our eternal life is very earth-based. It's very earth-bound. There, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be a, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and it will be there that we will live and worship our God forever. And it will be much greater than the promised land that the Israelites entered into. But that's what, that's what lies ahead of us. But for now, we're in this wilderness. And as we're here in this wilderness, we should be encouraged that the God who gave these promises to Abraham, and the God who delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, the God who helped them cross the Jordan and break down the walls of Jericho and defeat the Canaanites and gave them the land, is the same God who calls on us to trust him in this wilderness that we're in, in this in-between time in which we live. And he promised to be with us every step of the way. 
and guide us and help us and protect us until he finally and ultimately brings us to our eternal home, our promised land. And so church, be encouraged. God is with you. He hasn't left you. No matter how hard the wilderness gets. The wilderness was hard for the Israelites. At one point there was a giant flood. There was a pursuing army. There were strong enemies with fortified cities. There was famine. There was disease. There was sin. There was suffering. There was depravity all around them. And for us, there is much of the same. We live in a world of a wilderness of sin and suffering and Satan. Depravity all around us. Suffering, brokenness, pain. Such is life in the wilderness. But, but in the middle of this wilderness... God speaks to us from this story. He tells us two things. He tells us first, trust me. God, God, God encourages us to trust him in the midst of this. That in this wilderness, he's helping us. He's, he's guiding us. He's with us. He's protecting us. He's providing for us. And that he's promising to bring us home. That, that this wilderness will not last forever. These promises that were given to Abraham, we can and should apply to our lives as believers in Christ as well. But secondly, in this story, God is whispering to us, trust me, not only that I'm going to bless you, but trust me that I'm going to use you. He he wants us to join him on mission. He, he He wants us to engage in this mission that he's accomplishing. Make disciples of all nations. That, that, that vision of, of the throne room of God, where the Lamb is surrounded by people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people. That is what he is inviting us, the church of Jesus Christ, into, to engage in, to be on mission with him. So first and foremost, the application here is to trust God today, tomorrow, the next day, that he will be with you, he will guide you, he will, he will protect you, he, he will provide for you, he will help you, he is trustworthy, he will keep his promises. But secondly, while we're in this wilderness, we recognize not only that God intends to bless us, but that he intends to use us in the work of building his kingdom and reaching the nations so that we, the children of Abraham by faith, might be used of God in to be a blessing to all people. So we, we see embedded in the call of Abraham a missionary call to each and every one of us to join him on this mission. It's a call to offer our lives as instruments of grace, to both declare and display the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to others around us who are likewise walking in this wilderness. That through our words and through our lives that the gospel might be proclaimed and through the proclamation of the gospel that God might save. So that his plan of redemption that he designed in eternity past might reach all those whom Jesus died to save. And then thirdly, not only are we to trust God and we are to join him on mission, but thirdly, I would be remiss if we did not draw out some sort of application from the example of Abraham's building altars and worshiping God as he receives the promise. 
just upon a, a, a receiving the promise, there had been no fulfillment yet. None, not even partial fulfillment. fulfillment. But just the mention by God, by Yahweh to Abraham that I, I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna bless your family and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Just the mention of that promise, he builds altars and he worships Yahweh. Well, we don't build altars today. We are an altar. We are the temple of God. We, if we've professed faith in Jesus Christ, if God has saved us by grace through faith in Christ alone, then we are the temple of God. So we, we, don't, we don't build altars today. We are altars. We are the temple of God. And so we do worship him. And at the mere mention this morning of God's promises to us, whom he has saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that, that he's going to be with us. He's not going to leave us. He's going to help us. He's going to guide us in this wilderness. And that this wilderness is not going to be our forever home. We're not going to stay here forever. That he, he's going to come get us and, and he's going to bring us to our eternal home. And at the mention of this plan of God's, and at the mention of God's plan to, to redeem people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people, and that he is going to use us to do that, at the mere mention of God's promises to us, we ought to worship him. We ought to thank him. We ought to praise him. We ought to express our faith and our belief that God's spoken promises are in fact true and right and trustworthy because he will fulfill them. And so we ought to thank him. We ought to worship him. And we ought to live lives of worship that bring him glory. Would you pray with me?